0: All right, so I want to start today uh, by talking about SB 179 very briefly. Uh, Is that part of the Dewey Decimal System?
1: (laughs) Because I actually, I I realized that to the degree that I I ever learned the Dewey Decimal System in, like, first grade, um, I have uh, completely lost the entire concept of it. Like, I realized I walked to a library the other day, and I was like, what do these numbers mean? But I assume that's not what you're talking about.
0: You know, I tried to get a job at a, a summer job at a library once, and they made me take a Dewey Decimal test, um, <laughs> and I didn't get the job. And it's it's it's, it's like haunted me. I've used libraries <laughs> obsessively. Like, what did I did I did I miss a decimal point? Should should the word <laughs> the count as a title starting with a T or or nice. not? You know, like. Well, I think we all recognize that you were not meant to lead a career that involved books. Yeah yeah it's very true but so i, I want to talk about the s b one seven nine because I think it, it it brings up an interesting little kind of fulcrum point um and and does a thing that i really i mean i don't know i, don't know, I guess I do like it perversely I would say this is a perverse thing I like when okay uh it it can seem as if there's a right answer, but there's actually only two uh wrong answers and okay <laughs> you're trying to pick the less wrong one mm-hmm. so SB one seven nine is this new law in California called the Gender Recognition Act, which okay. al- allows people to legally be recognized as non-binary. Oh, okay. I mean legally. Did I say illegally? I mean legally. No, no, it, you said legally. Okay, sorry. It. Those words, it's like flammable and inflammable sometimes. I think
1: I think I could always illegal
0: illegally recognize <laughs> yeah, myself as non-binary. Yeah, you can illegally non-binary. call yourself non-binary everywhere. <laughs> um, but you can now legally declare yourself non-binary and so this seems like an, a nice step forward we can actually recognize that something like gender dysphoria is a real thing and that uh, people can, can now actually be recognized as being not simply male or simply female um, however what's problematic about this new, new act is that it actually places a lot of weight on the, the people who want to make this declaration. And it mm-hmm. also has some punitive aspects to it. So, like you
1: punish if you, if, you, if you don't follow the rules and how you identify
0: yourself as non-binary? Sort of, yeah. And, and if you identify yourself as non-binary and then you sort of change your mind. Ah, got it. So you can, you can apply for a gender change and submit an affidavit stating the request has not been made for fraudulent purposes, w- uh, which mm-hmm. means potentially if someone can prove, truthfully or not, that you've made this request for fraudulent purposes, then you're actually legally putting yourself in a precarious situation. Hmm. What would fraudulent purposes
1: be for labeling yourself as non- non-binary? Like to escape like like, creditors? I mean, I'm not sure how changing your gender de- or, or I guess, I, I was ambiguating your gender status uh,
0: can be a real kind of, like, nefarious scheme. Yeah, I'm not sure, and I, and I don't know that there are particular stories in mind yet, just that mm-hmm. there is now, like, a little... There's now a little tripmine attached to you legally declaring your gender, and that tripmine's not attached... To being male or female, ah,
1: uh, gotcha. <laughs> it's like we don't know how people will exploit it, but if you try to exploit it, there's a uh, a, a method to uh, punish people for it.
0: Right, right. You can you can be convicted of fraud, and you're signing an affidavit. Mm. You're also putting yourself in kind of a registry. This is not right. something that's recognized in other states. So mm-hmm. it, it, it. In some ways, it seems to culturally move the the conversation in what some people would say is the right direction um but it does it by weirdly adding like another set of problems
1: right well i think this i think this kind of thing happens anytime we try to kind of mix our bureaucratic structures and our gender kind of definitions or really any kind of what i would think of as more kind of um sort of accepted, normalized traditions that are, or um, conceptions that are maybe less um, fixed than the assumption, the general assumptions are, right? So anytime we sort of say, yeah, let's, let's just legally create uh, a, a framework that takes these, these things and, and fits them into our, our broader bureaucratic structures.
0: Yes, and this is the thing I really want to talk about today. I mean, SB-179 is very important, and there's been a lot of good work done on it. I, I have a, a former colleague, Sawyer Kemp, who writes about this in, in urgent and meaningful ways. Uh, I've seen it on Twitter, but he also writes in, in other forums as well. <laughs> he writes about an urgent and meaningful ways on Twitter. Um. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of stuff happening on Twitter. Uh, Not just that's true. It's not just horrible, although it's, you know, maybe 80 percent horrible. Um, What I really want to talk about today is how we put something very complex and very nuanced and very messy like gender into a system. In other words, how do you write or code the, the bizarre and messy landscape of sexuality and identity into a system that only thinks of things in the cleanest possible terms. And by clean, I don't mean clean as in like some kind of inquisitional sense, but rather just in terms of simple data, like a mm-hmm. binary of male-female is very simple for a system to deal with. Uh, non-binary and the spectrum of possible identities and the history of sexual identity uh, and reproductive and non-reproductive forms of sexuality uh, there's, there's almost nothing a system can do with that information Hi this is Darian Bates and this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates
1: and this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots the podcast about how we make our technology and how our technology makes us Right well and I would actually t- take it even a step further and say what is the purpose of coding those into the system um, and actually I you know I'd like to take a step back um, and say you know how have systems even before they've become kind of real technological systems or at least technology in the in our conventional sense of the word our, our current conventional sense of the word have our systems kind of uh, used gender and understood gender and at times um, leveraged ambiguity in gender um, to, to function in very specific ways. Um, I'm obviously teeing this up towards uh, the specific direction that I'd love to go in, since we have a guest on the pod today, who mm-hmm. um, uh, I th- we're coming at it from, I think, I think a really creative, really interesting direction here, but the, um, yeah, that's for others to judge. But uh, actually, we'll be joined today by um, Tucker Lieberman the author of uh, a new book called uh, Painting Dragons. What storytellers need to know about writing eunuch villains. And uh, eunuch, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Unix, and we'll go a little bit more into the definition because it's a little bit of a fuzzier definition than, than what I'll just
0: give right yeah. here. But U- basically... Unix is a kind of a very simple operating system.
1: Yeah, <laughs> eunuch.
0: Yes, exactly. Eunuch villains. Anytime somebody is coding.
1: And, and, no, but, uh, but eunuchs are um, uh, men who have been castrated um, at, at, at any, really at any point in their lives. Um, and it, generally speaking, eunuchs, while anybody who's been castrated, I guess could be termed a eunuch, uh, for the most part, mm-hmm. it's, it's often referred to in sort of a um, kind of a social structure setting. Like they, they're, they're a eunuch as a specific role. Uh, in often a caste system or a social structure, and I think most famously, uh, eunuchs played a played actually a large historically significant role in the Ming Dynasty uh, in China. They are castrated men who often served as political um, uh, or bureaucratic um, leaders and bureaucratic kind of forces within, and often actually a, a kind of marshaled quite a bit of power during that time. Um, but they've also, yeah. you know, I think they've showed up in, in Middle Eastern texts, um, both historically and and fictionally, uh, as like you know they manage harems and things like that. So the, um, they have kind of this, they have a historical um, background, but they also, in a way, their their footprint within our narratives is actually even larger than the than maybe their actual historical precedent um, and their historical existence, because um, they are often shown, they're often written into kind of our in many cases, orientalized uh, narratives, um, or our oriental narratives, our our fictionalized oriental narratives, um, as this kind of uh, gender-ambiguous, often villainous, or really kind of um, troubling in some way. They often, they're, they're often meant to be, they have this kind of I don't know how would you describe. It. What would you
0: use to term to sort of say, uh, yeah, they're, well, they're I would say the exact thing that is troubling about them is not necessarily their villainy or their malevolence or anything like this. It's it's almost that, given how clearly uh, characters tend to be uh, caricatured into either male or female types, that eunuchs tend to fall between these, and such are very hard to characterize. Um, right frequently right. in storytelling. And I, wanna, uh, I, I really want to cue up what I think is such a fascinating logic thing because it speaks to this idea that we're talking about with systems, where if in talking about something like SB 179, you're talking about a system trying to figure out how to work with a complex gender situation. Mm-hmm. With uh, the history of Unix, it often seems that the gender situation is manipulated in order to organize a system. So mm, it, mm-hmm. it's interestingly reversed, where it's this sort of recognition that okay, our system operates along maybe some guardrails of male and female, but actually, if we if we just go and physically manipulate a gender space of beings within that system, that allows us to change the whole system mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh,
1: uh, and order it or reorder it or or or. Alter it, yeah. No, absolutely. So, so uh, yeah, I'm very interested in kind of as we currently look in our gender structures and how what systems are doing to order our lives and how gender is used in that. To maybe start off by looking at kind of these these narratives around how gender and in time ambiguated gender uh, has been has been used both you know historically a little bit, but also kind of in our narratives to to kind of. Um, influence systems and and bureaucratic structures and things like that i I thought who better to do it than uh tucker lieberman who uh yeah author of this book and um i think longtime uh friend of the pod
0: yeah yeah
1: all right well uh with us today uh is is one tucker lieberman um will you'll we've already talked a little bit about uh you know uh how he comes to join us today. But uh, just very quickly here, uh, kind of on an introduction, uh, Tucker Lieberman worked, uh, I guess, for a decade in technology for an investment company, uh, focused on experience design and user acceptance testing, um, which I think are both uh, gonna be fascinating reference points for our conversation today. Uh, He's the author of a new book, uh, Painting Dragons, What Storytellers Need to Know About Writing Unique Villains um, and Not Unique Villains although possibly also. <laughs> <laughs> and also, right, that's, that joke is going to be made, like, four times, by the way, <laughs> um, today. Um, he also writes essays, fiction, and poetry. Uh, he is a trained as a life coach and can uh, and help people revise their own narratives about their lives, which I um, I feel like we need a whole other podcast just about inscribing one's own life narrative. Um, but yes, and he is, he is calling in from uh, Bogota, Colombia. Um, Hello. Although- So welcome, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. And um, I think just going into it, talk a little bit about um, the book Painting Dragons, um, both in terms of maybe starting off with just kind of what it's about.
2: Sure. Um, This is a book I have been working on for all my life. Um, It started (laughs) because when I was in college, I discovered That eunuchs existed I was looking for books that could inform me about transgender identity Mm. and I didn't find transgender characters in fictional narratives or in a lot of historical narratives Mm. what I found were eunuchs castrated men and there was a Mm. lot of literature that included them as symbols in ancient religion they had some roles as priests or priestesses. Um, They were in a lot of political narratives. And I became fascinated trying to understand what they were because they didn't seem to exist anymore. They had disappeared Mm -hmm. in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, what were these? I mean, so, I mean, I guess the definition of a eunuch, as you said, is, I guess, has traditionally been just... A, a, a castrated man, are they necessarily castrated before they come of age, or is it just at any point in their lives if they're castrated? Uh, in this model, you become a eunuch? Yeah, it could be at any time.
2: There's clearly a lot of individual variation in people's stories. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of these people were victims of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have been castrated voluntarily, although, you know, if it's in the context of a society where there's a lot of social stratification and poverty exactly what voluntary castration would be uh, is up for debate as well um, and yet again it could be at any age um, there could have been some migration involved uh, what exactly they were trying to achieve could be anything related to singing or controlling sexual urges or some kind of religious aspiration where they thought that castration was necessary. So there's a lot of variation involved. Uh, the word eunuch is just used as a blanket term to describe castration in general, although, of course, different authors could use it in more specific ways.
1: Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of a, there's the there's the kind of the narrative function of the eunuch, and then there's just the historical function of the eunuch. And my understanding is, aside from castrati, which were uh, uh, Young men who are castrated to retain kind of that higher voice um, sound, so that the voices didn't change at puberty. For the most part, um, my understanding is that that the the heaviest use of eunuchs in both literature and possibly in um, actual historical structures was was sort of in the political world, where you know I think I I maybe most associate them with sort of these these Orientalized narratives of sort of Chinese emperorships that where eunuchs are kind of, or, or orientalized, um, I guess, subcontinent or Middle Eastern rajahs or something where they're political factors or they manage a harem or something like that. They have this, they're kind of men but not men who are kind of political pieces. Is that, is, does that sum it up in the, in the worst of the objectifying ways? Yes,
2: that's accurate that they did play those roles. And Mm -hmm. in China, at the end of the Ming Dynasty was probably when there were the most eunuchs alive and employed at any one time. There were tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of eunuchs who served bureaucratic roles in Mm. the Chinese imperial system. So that is certainly one social role that they played.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in some ways, just from a historical perspective, as far as you know, like, why... Why was being castrated such, a, such an essential part of, be, of playing a political role in the Ming dynasty? It seems, it seems like it's, that doesn't usually come into play when you're managing traditional politics is whether you have testicles or not.
2: Yeah, there was a specific historical prompt for that um, because there were men who were in power who were fighting between different agencies. And so one of the emperors thought, well, if we just give the eunuchs more power and increase their number, they will sort of be a buffer between the other people who are in the imperial system and who are fighting with each other, and that will control the warring factions. Um, And it actually backfired a little bit in that the eunuchs gained so much power that they themselves began to be perceived as a threat or a nuisance in terms of uh, political corruption. So that's how that started in that particular historical moment. Um, But eunuchs were employed also politically in other cultures and eras for different reasons.
1: Hmm. Well, that's, so that's really interesting. And I, I'll, I'll put a pin in that a little bit, because I think it gets to kind of this broader discussion that I think is really interesting right now that is more tech related, but, um, this idea of, uh, like you, you put Unix in place to be a power between, I mean, to be a buffer between like a traditionally male warring environments only to find that you're, uh, your buffer itself starts becoming a threat <laughs> um, that feels uh that feels prescient in, in maybe <laughs> a technology uh discourse but but before we go into that just um one of the things i was struck by by reading um the book and i have to admit I've, I've read pieces of it i have not finished the whole thing i've been struck by how it's almost like a little bit of a philosophical how-to guide for writers um who are writing unit characters um can you talk a little bit about like what are people doing wrong like when they pr- when they approach this, uh, this kind of unique slash eunuch character type. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, Toby? <laughs> See, I told you that a bell should go off. This should be like a drinking game. Um, but like, you know, what are people traditionally doing wrong and, and kind of why? And, in some ways, and then the third question is, I guess, what's the impact of them doing that wrong?
2: Hmm. So you're correct. It's written as sort of a how-to guide for writers especially novelists. Um, But I would describe it more precisely as a how-not-to guide because I didn't want to be too prescriptive in the book telling people how eunuchs should be described in fiction. I think part of fiction is that we have creativity and we can create new characters, and part of gender diversity is allowing people to be their unique selves. Um, The how-not-to comes in insofar as once a story has already been written, it becomes hackneyed. You don't necessarily want to repeat that because it becomes a stereotype, it becomes a trope. So what I was doing in this book was to examine some fictional stories about eunuchs that have already been written and to identify some tropes in which they are stereotyped as villains specifically. And I was just pointing out, as a matter of how not to, um, by saying that if your eunuch is scheming and villainous, it's drawing from a stereotype and you, know, you, you may not want to repeat that in your fiction um, because that can be harmful to mm-hmm. readers um, who may identify as some kind of gender diverse or who are looking for inspiration and not finding it if what they get instead is a stereotypical villain. And also just because it makes the story tired. Uh, people have heard the villainous eunuch story before.
1: it's it's basically it's bad for the world and it's bad writing at the same time it seems seems to be the the summation of that it's it, it it hurts people and it's not even very good to begin with um i mean toby i'm very interested in your perspective on this as well when you sort of see people engaging with kind of classic tropes or stereotypes in fiction and in literature like like It's not necessarily the case when somebody engages with a trope uh, or a regular trope that that is going to be turned into bad writing, but it has the, I guess, how have people navigated this just from your own kind of uh, view on it as well. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's the fascinating thing about... It's one of the fascinating things about writing. And I I like to think about it in terms of movies. Like, when you incorporate a a character like Sigourney Weaver or an actress like Sigourney Weaver into your movie, you're you're also incorporating, like, Ghostbusters and Alien and all of the traditions that she participates in into your film because she carries all of that with her. And it's Mm -hmm. the same thing, I think, in literature. And I think Tucker said it very well, that... Once you incorporate a particular stereotype, a particular caricature, a particular kind of character uh, into your text, you you are also incorporating all of the texts previous to that into your text. You know, and this is how mm-hmm. these sort of traditions propagate themselves. I find it fascinating, you know, in thinking about uh, my own experience with um, castrated characters. Often in the Western tradition, it seems it shows. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking in particular about *The Sound and the Fury*, which has a, a castrated character. It's it, it, it has this kind of cloud of, of, like, the ultimate sin about it. Like, the worst thing you can ever do is this castration. Um, I, I don't know. And, like, it's so interesting to me because as, as Tucker was explaining, you know, well, you could be castrated whenever, for whatever reason, sometimes more or less intentionally, uh, sometimes more or less because of your desire um, to become a eunuch. But, like, a character like in The Sound of the Fury who, becomes, who gets castrated for being um, mentally handicapped... Um, I never thought about the term eunuch in, in that relation. like in, in a way, the, the the sort of criminality of castration, which plays an enormous role in America in the American political system, uh, like racial eugenics and castration were a, a huge thing throughout the 19th and 20th century in the United States. Um, it's interesting how that, that that seems of a separate tradition. so I, I agree entirely that like uh, it, 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 and thus, the character of the eunuch, I think in the Western tradition is often orientalized in ways that I I imagine are profoundly damaging and dehumanizing. Um, But I'm speaking a little out of my, over my head here.
1: Yeah. Well, and you come to this, Tucker, um, I mean, in some ways, directly interfacing with this, you know, possible toxicity, Um, because, because you were kind of in the writing of this kind of trying to explore and engage with kind of your own ambivalence about, um, kind of gender roles and gender identification and things like that when you started encountering these narratives?
2: Sure, yeah, it was personal for me because I am a transgender man. I was raised as a girl and I began living as a man when I was 17 or 18. Um, So I interacted with these stories about eunuchs in my own way, trying to make sense of my own life. I was looking initially for narratives about transgender people I suppose but they didn't exactly exist in the 90s or they were mm-hmm. difficult to find this was of course before Amazon and before you could search for things <laughs> yeah. very easily um you know what what was in an academic library was a lot of stuff about Unix so mm-hmm. it was definitely interpreted through a very personal lens for me and I'm aware that other people may have their own personal lenses through which they they examine these stories.
1: But, and I think, I mean, exactly. And I think what's what's interesting is that, I mean, obviously our, our literature, or at least our nonfiction has become more, um, has, has become broader with, with more kind of, again, nonfiction discourse, or at least about the subject, um, about transgendered um, issues and, and perspectives. Um, but you're right, when you're coming to it as somebody who is trying to figure out Kind of where they sit in this this gender world, um, yeah. I mean, fiction is a really powerful tool, and the idea of not having kind of representation or understanding within the in the narratives that you see, I, don't, I think it's hard for people to understand when you when when there's not a character in fiction that really helps you understand these these underlying traits of gender or whatever kind of personhood is involved. It's really. It can be really alienating, I think, in a long way, in, a, in a, even towards even understanding yourself. I mean, I think the the role of fiction in self um, realization, I think, is maybe maybe misunderstood or um, under recognized.
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, a lot of what fiction helps us do is to empathize. It helps mm-hmm. us empathize with the character because fiction is really good at showing character motivations. Um, Mm -hmm. That's something that's not always obviously visible when we interact with other people, say, on the street, or when we read even journalistic articles. Um, The most the journalist can say is, well, here's what the person said. This -hmm. is what they said they think. They claim to think this. But it can't reveal what they actually feel because that's just not visible to us. And in fiction, that's a playground where we can explore what we think other people feel and think. And so that's also a way where we can learn more about ourselves because we Mm -hmm. can see those inner dialogues mirrored in a fictional character.
1: Well, I think that's, I mean, when you're talking about motivations and things like that, um, hopefully this is not an awkward segue, but it's actually kind of one of the things that we, when we were talking a little bit about the perspectives um, that are kind of coming out of, these, these inscribing of narratives onto eunuchs really came to this idea of like, who are these kind of buffer mechanisms in our, in our society now between various power structures and things like that. Our buffer mechanisms are not obviously transgendered people. They're, they're robots. They're increasingly becoming artificial intelligences. And, uh, I posit kind of that those are actually our becoming our modern day eunuchs at risk of sounding like I'm, I'm marginalizing and increasingly, well, a historically marginalized character type to begin with.
2: Yeah, I think that's a possible interpretation. Yeah. I mean, just to quickly acknowledge that there are people who are castrated today, um, especially those who have prostate cancer, they mm-hmm. are often chemically castrated as part of their treatment because testosterone fuels the cancer. So it's important to interrupt that hormonal profile and, um, essentially castrate them, although it's not often called that because it's an alarming term. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, transgender people have our own body modifications that we do for our own reasons. Um, and Transgender people don't seem to use the word eunuch today. It's uh, not in favor. Um, but apart from the actual human beings who are literally castrated, um, if we want to deliberately take it into a metaphorical space and say, you know, this ancient idea of a eunuch servant who is... Fulfilling that role of a servant today, um, yeah, I think we could definitely say, you know, robots are fulfilling a role of a genderless servant. It's,
1: yeah, and I, I both in terms of uh, when we really think about this, this narrative figure of the the eunuch servant, it's also the eunuch servant slash villain, as your <laughs> as your uh, <laughs> book states. And I think that is in some ways where our robots sit as well, is that they are both our eunuch servants. <laughs> In this kind of uh metaphorical way, and also kind of a little bit of a villain that we are increasingly feeling like we've we're giving power to and questioning whether they are uh how they're going to use the power that we're we're giving them is this all speculating wildly or is this is this a, at least conceptual foundations that we can kind of work off of I think it's a fun concept,
2: so let's work off of it
0: all right Excellent. and i I'd like to maybe like do a little tweak in here to to make this work like. Uh, One of the, the, this term metaphorical, that gets floated around where it's like, well, that's a metaphor. Um, I I think one thing to kind of tighten that term a little bit, we relate to almost everything via metaphor. Uh, You know, (laughs) the linguist Roman Jakobsen talks about language is always uh, either metonymical or metaphorical, which is to say that we either relate things to things that are like themselves or things that are different from themselves. That, right, like these are, we've got this kind of binary switch, right? The, uh, right, right. No,
1: I, I just like the idea that you're saying, um, so to tighten this term a little bit, metaphors are basically referring to everything. I think well, that's, yeah, that's this, called broadening yeah. the term.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think what, what can happen sometimes when you say, well, uh, a robot is sort of a metaphor for uh, what used to be a marginalized social group.
1: Or a marginalized social group is a metaphor for what is now a robot, but yeah.
0: Right, precisely, that that these two things are in this relationship. You can say, well, okay, well, that's not literal, it's metaphorical, so we can kind of set it to the side as like a cute thing happening on this rebel tech podcast. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But if you say, well, actually, no, this is how we relate to things, that there is nothing outside this box, outside of these ways of perceiving the world and perceiving the things we interact with in the world, then, then suddenly what you have to realize is that it's not like robots are some objective mechanical truth force that happens out there and then you get in the automated car and then you're safe. But rather that they themselves are caught up in this box of something like gender, which is why mm-hmm. um, we're always gendering our robots. You know, yeah. uh, why Alexa and Siri and Cortana have gendered voices, why our GPS have gendered voices. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And why specifically these, these mechanisms that we treat as sort of uh, servant mechanisms get the voices of, of groups that have less social power, uh, which in this mm. case is often a, an effeminate voice. Because you could just give them a, a monotone robotic voice, but um, that's not how people communicate. That's not how people interact with each other or with machines or the world. I mean, you can even hear people, gender boats and cars that have no artificial intelligence associated with them. Mm-hmm. And so this is all to say, uh, I, I think this project is brilliant. I think Tucker's brilliant. And I think part of what's brilliant about it is this recognition that uh, you know, scholars like Judith Butler have found that gender is performance. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we think about how do we program something like gender, how do we perform them, we can realize that this is the exact same conversation that's happening with machines in our tech spaces these days. Hmm.
1: I I think that's absolutely right. You know, and, and when we were talking about this, um, Tucker shared this uh, this link to this SNL skit. Um, I think it was from a little from a while ago. I think I think Casey Affleck was was in the was the, was the host. Um, actually, I don't know if you want to describe it, Tucker, but it was, it was this, basically this, this performance of gender by robot.
2: Yeah, it was a spoof. Um, it seemed to be from 2016. It was a spoof of a tech expo where they were introducing a humanoid robot and it looked like a normal guy. It was, um, a white guy in a suit looking very much uncanny valley because his face was kind of plasticized in that robot Mm -hmm. manner. Um, And he introduces himself, he says, hello, I'm a robot, I'm here to help you with your work. And then, at the end of his introduction, he randomly tacks on that he is gay, that he is (laughs) sexually attracted to men, he clarifies, to make it more explicit in case there's any doubt about what that means. He likes men's bodies, and so the joke is that he performs this sexuality, and arguably his gender, in a way that is inappropriate, it's socially inappropriate, um... It's a little bit uncanny valley, but it's somehow more than that because it seems like something he was programmed to say and it comes out in an inappropriate moment and it's not clear why he was programmed to say that at all
1: mm-hmm right and I think what's so interesting about that is what what is laid bare by that I mean along and again the the joke of the 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 joke of the skit sort of goes a little bit fur it kind of goes into this um you know, Casey Affleck's characters in the audience at this Microsoft Expo and is like, um, so why did you need to share that with us, right? Why do you need to share that you're gay? It's like, I, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with you being gay, but like, why do you feel like it's, and the joke is like this question of like revealing kind of this, these subtextual um, kind of character characteristics associated with sort of a, a superficial gender presentation so he comes out and presents himself as this white male and then saying but here's all my motivation here's all my identity underneath this presentation um and you realize when you start questioning well why is it that way why do you feel like you need to be that it's you realize that there's that the way we present gender kind of across the board in our robots it's not it's not at all arbitrary but when you start examining it, you realize there's a lot of meaning to why we actually inscribe our robots, as as you were saying, Toby, with with like in some cases uh, um, slightly less, you know, like as a lower power dynamic. So we don't have a lot of like um, very butch male, um, art, you know, AI assistants out there. We don't have like John Wayne coming up to you and is like, "Can I help you with that document?" That's my John Wayne, by the way. <laughs> Um, but it's like we've moved way beyond this idea of this floating, um, clippy AI intelligence that's going to help you write a letter and turn very much into this gendered performance. Um, but then we're trying to pretend like we don't see the motivations underneath and we don't see the characters, characters underneath, even though that's exactly why we've gendered them is so that we feel like they're a motiv- they're a motivated character in our lives.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, and and funnily enough, this is a best case scenario. Like but- like, <laughs> that, that that I think. Go that you, on. Recently, uh, Google turned out had a had created a secret hiring algorithm, and so what this algorithm was supposed to do is it was supposed to like churn through all this information, like LinkedIn and all these people's profiles and applications, job applications, and this sort of thing, and, and resumes, and it was supposed to use all these metrics to identify the best candidates. Um. And they were like, this is great. We have an objective machine. It's going to go through. It's going to look at all this information. It's going to give us the best candidates. And it turned out it discriminated horribly against women. <laughs> and via the sort of like uh, neural network process that it used to select preferable candidates, it, it started to select almost every signal that the candidate was female as a way to, dis, to, to uh, uh, cut them out of the hiring process. And the the realization, of course, uh, coming far later, is that if you don't explicitly think about gender and sexuality and bias in the machines, if you don't have your machine saying, oh, by the way, I'm gay, um, then the machine will instead work with the implicit biases that are of of the programmers and of the social structure and of the systems that went into its creation.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting, which kind of gets me to this question, to almost extend your, your how-to or how-not-to guide for writing Unix is, you know, if you, if you were engaged with this question of how-to and how-not-to uh, write our, our modern Unix uh, being, our, our AI systems, how, how do we do that in a way that that is, that is I mean, I guess that just is, be blank that is good. I have no other <laughs> that is healthy. I was like trying to find all these different ways that is this, and I was like, you know, let me just go to the uh, what is what is the right way to inscribe gender <laughs> into, uh, um, or is there any right ways?
2: Yeah, well, to build off the story that Toby shared, um, just to clarify what that story was about, what I've heard is that the robot in that case or the system was not looking for specific traits that were actually relevant to the job necessarily. It was copying the hiring patterns that it saw humans do. So Mm -hmm. if humans in the past had turned down women for jobs, when that was computerized, the computer was saying, well, I'm turning down all these resumes because I've been taught that's what is good to do. It wasn't Mm -hmm. an objective way of saying, I see work history or personality traits on this resume that are relevant to the job. Um, So I think there is some lesson there in that, you know, if we're just replicating the past, we are replicating our biases. And sometimes we have to make an explicit effort to change what we're doing. And that is true whether we're the ones who are in charge of the hiring process or the narrative, or whether we're asking for AI assistance. Either way, we yeah. have to tell them what we want them to do and what are some pitfalls that we really want them to avoid.
1: Right, and in some ways, how do we, and, and what, not just do we want them to do, but how we want them to behave and how we want them to perform things like, like gender. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in the question of uh, um, how much of a process of building a robot's gender is like fiction writing. Like how much, like where does the writer... Where does the person who's inscribing it, whether it's a uh, a technologist somewhere or whether it's a strategist somewhere or or whoever's writing these these kind of gender character, gendered characters into fiction, that they are that they can kind of have the free reign to imagine the motives, feelings of this kind of uh, this figure that they're creating or um, or is it much more driven by this idea of, well, our data is telling us they need to act like this or they need to act like this. Like, you know, and it's less about kind of the business environment and how that's created and more almost how much, sh- how, how much should it be? Cause I think as you were saying, it sounds like if they, if they just draw from the data, you might end up very well just locking in these kind of, um, kind of biased presentations.
2: Yeah. I think there's definitely a role for data gathering. And when it's done well, that is science. Um, That's Mm -hmm. called user research or social studies. Um, And a lot of work goes into that, to doing it properly. I think part of the reason we're not always good at that is because we've sort of evolved to do that on autopilot. You know, the way humans Mm -hmm. gather information about the world is we go out our front door and we look at the world and we take it in visually and we listen and you know, it, it's absorbed as if through osmosis and we don't always think consciously about the data we take in and we don't have historically a lot of systems to crunch all the numbers. Um, we're just now technologically evolving systems that can crunch those numbers for us. And I think part of the problem is that we're not used to thinking about it consciously. Mm-hmm. We, we've developed these enormous databases. We have big data and it's like we don't, know how to analyze them yet and when we do it takes a lot of human effort to figure out how we're going to analyze them and why we would care i think that's mm-hmm. a, a big question in doing this kind of user research or data gathering it's like really why do we care what is our motive
1: mm-hmm Right. And you're come you're speaking from I mean, you're both speaking from the author of this book, but also from the perspective of someone who's worked in user experience and user acceptance testing and, and really sort of seeing how people when something does hit the actual environment in which users are engaging a system through some sort of interface, whether it's a, a technical a, a screen interface or a um, a personality interface, like an AI assistant. Um, it, it, you, you have seen kind of that, that rubber meets the road engagement level and, and how that can be informed or or not informed sometimes by both the data and also kind of the, the judgment that we can make as, as humans who are writing these things.
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the ways that we can begin to explore it is by something called storyboarding.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: if you're developing a system, you have a very dry clinical idea of what you want the system to do and you say okay here's the inputs here's the outputs here's what the screen is going to look like Um, but another thing you can do is storyboarding and make it kind of a comic strip even in in its presentation with Mm -hmm. surrounding with context with human users of the system and Mm -hmm. say oh this is how i think it fits into human life so it's not just a smartphone screen if you're really storyboarding the whole concept and narrative of what this technology does, you're drawing a picture of a human being with the smartphone in their hand and they're standing on a city street and they're looking for an address
0: mm-hmm. and the smartphone and is talking send... to
2: them. And that voice is either male or female. And then the human user is gendering that voice and talking to their AI assistant with he or she pronouns. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be a more complete narrative.
1: <laughs> right. And I think, and then at that point you, uh, you start saying, "Well, who is that assistant that's standing them with that, with them at that time, and what kind of assistant do they need?" Um, and then the I guess the question is then when you write that assistant in whatever gendered way that you do or not or choose not to do, um, what is the impact of of inscribing in the same way that inscribing um, you know classic eunuchs with this. They're both subservient and possibly villainous. <laughs> what are we doing by basically creating these gendered personalities in terms of our overall concept of what someone's behavior is? Um, you know, this, this this idea of don't you know you can imagine people like, oh man, she's such a Siri type personality. <laughs> like she's such a she's such a she's such a calming but largely subservient presence. And like she she's, <laughs> she, she's such an AI. Right. Like, are there ways in which we start by creating these gendered uh, automatons, whether they're digital or whether they're actually physicalized automatons? Do we start creating a, a robot type that we that we then either associate with or try to disassociate ourselves from?
2: That's a hard one. Like the gender of the robot becomes recognized as a quasi human personality. And we want to know how to integrate that into our social life.
1: Right, or even the, we don't want to end up being associated with that kind of personality, or you know, like that. that there's like almost a caste status to that, <laughs> to that kind of gender role. Does that make Does that make sense, Toby?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I and uh, I, I think this is a real, very real issue. That, and I, I think you said it so well earlier, Tucker, when you were talking about how the few unit characters that do show up in literature end up inflecting the later characters. And so if you do it wrong, then there's this problem of the sort of tr- the tradition of representation that that something can become a stereotype or caricature. Um, and and to, to kind of tie that into another study, they did a study with children um, who were speaking to home assistants like Alexa and Siri type things. And they found that the children, if they weren't taught otherwise, began to like treat the begin to kind of bully the home assistants and then that behavior would sort of leak out into their daily lives that they were essentially learning that they could just demand things and tell things <laughs> what to do and like practicing lording over another being. And, and mm-hmm. if part of what they're practicing lording over is uh, like a, a non-gendered or effeminate or feminine, because uh, that's the only gender marker for those home assistants, then are we potentially uh replicating this really problematic power dynamic uh with our children at a, at a very early age and then you can sort of uh you know follow that slippery slope all the way out to um you know what is the danger of of essentially creating multigendered or singularly gendered or complicatedly gendered or non-gendered effeminate uh sort of beings into our lives but then treating them this way mm-hmm.
1: No, that and I think that, absolutely. And it also feels like that is a that is teeing up for our signature question here, which is, uh, you know, Apocalypse or Utopia? You know, are we uh, in, in creating this world in which we are increasingly surrounded by these uh, slightly androgynously gendered assistants. Um, are we are we pushing the world in a negative direction towards you know where we just start associating everybody with uh, anybody who is gendered a certain way starts becoming our uh, kind of our, our servant, or are we uh, are we, we go in the opposite direction with a, a more a broader more healthy view of gender kind of uh, across the human robot spectrum.
0: A uh, ten being utopia and one being apocalypse.
1: Right. <laughs> Just to be clear on our numerical scale scale. Um so yeah, no, I'm interested in, in, in your perspective. I mean this may seem uh, fairly superficial, um or not. This may be the, the gets to the essence of what it is to be human. Um but sort of your perspective, Tucker, on kind of this uh Maybe, maybe starting off with this question of how we're inscribing gender more and more into our uh, ingrained systems, um, not just whether we're doing it, but also the nature, the, the methods by which we're doing it and, by, and the output that we've seen so far from these, uh, these gendered figures that are increasingly around us. Yeah,
2: I am skeptical of the goodness and worth of having gender in our robots or perceiving gender in our robots. Um, hmm. Because we certainly haven't figured out sexism between humans yet. And (laughs) if we don't know exactly how sexism works all the time, what initiates it, and we don't know how to solve it and transcend it, then plugging gender into robots may seem to carry the risk of amplifying sexism even more than what humans normally do with each other. Um, Just as... Online debates can become not really intelligent debates, but just shouting matches and can become very strident and can amplify divisions and increase polarization. Um, I I think having gendered robots can risk amplifying gender stereotypes. And part of the reason for that is that robots can't yet advocate for themselves.
1: I was just thinking the same thing. It's a really good point because it's, um, you know, there is a um, there's a, a similar study to the one that Toby cited that was showing that people people have increasingly come to expect of other people the same kind of responsiveness um, as they expect from their their especially their phones, but their mobile devices that that the way that mobile devices are regularly updated to be more and more responsive to the behaviors and whims and requirements of users and that they'll just, they'll get a new phone, they'll upgrade their phone, they'll add a new app or something like that, that that's increasingly the, setting the kind of foundation of expectation in interpersonal relationships as well. And that people, I think the the, the headline on this is that and people increasingly literally love their phones. Um, and you're right, because phones phones don't, challenge you at all if if you have a subservient female sounding phone uh and you decide to kind of maybe step over a few lines with it it's not going to (laughs) it's not going to uh kind of uh you know hold it hold it uh against you later on when you're running for when you're being considered for
0: the supreme court zing topical
1: yeah, well, <laughs> topical on our t- on our timelines. Wow, that was that
0: was a that was a two month old
1: joke. That was a uh, <laughs> <laughs> practically all Quran. Um. Yeah, no, that's really good, Toby. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I'm. I I, I agree with the expert. Um, uh, I, oh, although I, although did you give a reductive
1: number to this uh, this thing that you're skeptical to? I'll give it a four. Four. All right.
0: Yeah. I agree. I like four um, because there's there, from, there's like a, there's like a sliver of utopian sort of like what if we break gender and you're like oh wait it's already broken you know like, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there, 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 there's there's the slightest sliver of that um, but I think there's much more of the just sort of move fast and break things mentality and 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 why that's so bad in a, a case like this is because the the negotiations. And like the very careful cultural evolutions that have even gotten us to this point of uh, extremely tortured and violent and cautious gender uh, relations where it's like, well, maybe we can start realizing that our pronouns are problematic. Uh, And it's like, you know, and that that itself causes a furor that. That if you break the basic terms for the debate, then uh, you're, you're setting back like even the ability to have a, a complex discussion of these things a very long ways. Um, so if big tech were reading like books like Tucker's book, I think that would be great because they could actually think through. They could they could take the the learning from somebody who spent their entire life thinking through. Well, how do you how do you put something into narrative form? How do you how do you put information into a system how do people access that system how do people recognize themselves or not recognize themselves or negotiate with text um mm-hmm. but i I do not think this is how robot programming is happening um hmm. so, so eh, I'm, I'm but gonna, I'll say a four
1: yeah i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can push the needle up and then i might I might just uh I might cave but um I, it, in a way, I'm gonna am I'm gonna be the lone voice in the wilderness right now, crying uh, the defense of big tech for a second. Um, Go for it. Yeah, exactly. Because I actually think gender is one of those decision points. So there's a lot of problems with tech um, related, and, and one of some of the biggest problems of tech is that the tech is that they're especially big tech is that they're they're so investor driven that by the time by the time the investor mandates are set, there's very little that can be done. Um, in technology companies to moderate some of the, the worst impulses coming from the investor groups. Um, and the worst impulses, again, I'm not, they're not sitting around cackling and, and trying to do villainous things. They're just basically seeking, seeking revenue and a bottom-line um, bottom benefit that also has sort of a lowest common denominator outcome sometimes. Um, but I actually think inscribing gender is one of those places that actually isn't necessarily an investor-level decision, um, and it's actually one of those things that I think does get made at more of the programming level um, and sort of these, these mid-level decision points. Um, and actually, I'm not entirely certain that in in those circles, whether those people aren't reading books like Tucker's book. I actually think that uh, my experience in the tech world with people who are at that kind of mid-level point that are not necessarily just in the investor, in the investor class or having to cater to the demands of the investor class that are actually in the, the trenches tra- kind of writing code and making some of these strategic or even feature level decisions, they're, they're actually a very, the, you know, again, the, these, these are the people who are living in San Francisco, sometimes in rents that they can barely afford, um, even making sort of a ridiculous amount of money as engineers. Um, they are exploring some of these questions and some of these intellectual, with, with, a, fair, with a significant amount of intellectual curiosity. Um, whether the whether the, all of their impulses can be manifested in a final, um, uh, you know, the final product, not always, but I I actually think we have there is a way in which this is one of those places where um, I think really well-meaning, well-educated, um, I think positively-minded people who are a lot of people who have went into tech to begin with. Um, because they really see the possibility um, and really are programmers and things like that. I think they, they can bring some of their be- some of their better judgments to bear in this kind of feature. and that, that can be a, a place for change. So that's so I'm, I'm, I'm pushing more towards a, a six because I think that people, because of books like this and because of the discourse like this that I, I think maybe can move us in that direction. Um, but, but fight me on that if you, if you feel like I, my, my rosy picture, my rosy tinted glasses, my rose tinted glasses are, uh, maybe a little bit too rosy.
0: Yeah. I think we'll just have to see how many people read Tucker's book and that will decide. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That'll be the bellwether. Thank you for
2: your optimism about the influence of my book.
1: <laughs> well, and others like it. It is certainly, I, I believe, it is, it is, it is part of a trend. I, I don't think that. I don't think your book stands alone. Although it, it, it does apparently at times stand alone on Amazon as far as a as performing particularly well. At times, at least, in at least in its subgenre category,
2: it is definitely in a subgenre category: LGBT literary <laughs> criticism.
1: <laughs> That's a booming business. I hope so um well we normally when, when toby and i are on it we we arm wrestle each other until we end up with a, in accordance but uh we, we we don't we don't force that kind of possibly negative uh sentiment onto our podcast so let's let's live with this uh amorphous let's hope for a six and uh and live with the possibility that there's maybe more likely we end up at a four i yeah. hope that we, we can, can hope we can. our way out of the apocalypse
0: yeah (laughs) exactly that's how it always happens that's how uh... that's how you
1: fight the apocalypse with hope
0: numbers don't have to be just one way darian
1: (laughs) that's true they don't have to be they don't have to be binary yeah um yeah no that's true ah tucker thank you so much for joining us today we i really enjoyed this thank you darian and toby thanks awesome well we will uh we will hopefully talk again talk again soon um and we'll talk about C-3PO and whether oh, yeah. C-3PO <laughs> was in fact a, uh, a Unique droid. C-3PO's gender identity, <laughs> we forgot to talk about that. <laughs> exactly. These are not the droids that we were talking about. Maybe my next book
2: will be about C-3PO.
1: <laughs> See, there's an audience for that. I think C-3PO <laughs> as, a, as a, eunuch, a eunuch droid, I think is actually, you, you'll sell a million copies. <laughs> All right, well, have a great one. Have a great day. Bye. All right, take care.